Well, hey everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. Um, and I just have to say something. Like, I don't know if you guys noticed that last worship song. Okay, a little different than what we normally do around here. Um, but when I was in college in Ann Arbor, I attended a Pentecostal church for four years. And I, yes, there is a Pentecostal church in Ann Arbor, just let that sink in. But anyway, raises a lot of questions, I know. But I was there, and there was something latent way back in my subconscious that as soon as we began to sing that song, this voice inside of my heart went, about time we had some proper music around this church. And I was like, one, where did that come from? And two, why does it have a southern accent? So I'm going to talk to my counselor this week, and I'll let you know. Anyway, uh, one more thing before we get to the talk. I want to take a moment to brag about the incredible team that serves our middle and high school students here at Keystone. Um, as many of you know, last weekend we had a little bit of a snow adventure. I had a bunch of pastors reach out. Apparently, we were the only church in Kent County that was open. Yeah. Yeah, not telling us we have to close. Anyway, and then um, as a result of all the snow, the buses that we had hired to bring the students to their snow camp canceled, okay? Apparently, you, you can cancel snow camp because of too much snow. But uh, students were disappointed. Leaders were disappointed. It really is one of the highlights of our year together. Um, anyway, in response to the cancellation, uh, instead of rolling over and taking a nap, our student ministry team here at Keystone, led heroically by Grant and Caitlin, organized a winter retreat right here at church last Sunday. It went from two to nine. Seven hours in the building with middle school and high school students. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I would not have done that, okay? <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, my wife and I were here and it was absolutely incredible. I have three boys in the program, and I'm telling you, they had a blast. And, and so as a parent and as a pastor, would you join me? Thank our student ministry volunteers and uh, staff. Yeah, man, really. And if, you, if you've never had the experience of hearing a bunch of teenagers in a room singing their hearts out to God, uh, yeah, you'll know if your tear ducts work. I'll just tell you that by the end of that whole thing. Anyway, we're in the third week of a series called what is God like? Um, and many, as you, many of you know, it was actually inspired by a talk that I gave last fall that was also called, What is God Like? And uh, in that talk, we explored a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers in which he told them something that would have been absolutely mind-bending to them. Here's, here's what he said. He said, guys, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus told his disciples, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know God. Like if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. If you've watched me, you've watched him. Uh, and so we, we established that conversation. Then I went on to note that this reality is what makes those New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, so invaluable because they actually contain the answer to the question of what God is like. And so that was sort of the statement that sparked this series. And, and each week in this series, we're exploring a narrative from the life of Jesus and then simply asking the question, what does this tell us about what God is like? And, and today, well, today we get to unpack what I honestly believe to be one of the most hopeful answers to the question of what God is like. Because um, as, we'll, as you'll soon see, God loves everybody. And I mean everybody. Nobody has gone too far. Nobody has done too much. 
to be disqualified from the love of God. And, and the reason that I can say that so confidently is because of an experience that Jesus had one day with his first followers. And it was an experience that radically shaped the way they saw the world and it's experience that they never forgot. But, but before I show you that text, I need to give you a bit of context because once again, context is key to understanding what's going on in the narrative. And so I'll start with this. Um, for the past couple of weeks, I've noted that almost all of Jesus' original disciples were from a three-town region near the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee that scholars call the Orthodox Triangle. Um, the towns were Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, just a couple of miles apart, sort of formed this triangle-shaped space. And in Jesus' day, uh, this region was home to some of the most passionately devout Jews in the entire world. They were radically committed to following the rules that were outlined in the Old Testament, and they were radically committed to passing their faith and their way of life onto their children. So we've talked about that. What I haven't told you yet is that in the first century, just across the Sea of Galilee from the Orthodox Triangle, well, there was a Roman city called Hippos that was home to people who saw the world very differently than the religious Jews who lived in towns like Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. A Hippos was literally a city on a hill. At night from Capernaum, you could see the fires of that city. Uh, but again, the, the way of life between these two areas could not be greater in its contrast. I mean, uh, in, at the Orthodox Triangle, what you had is a synagogue-centric, rule-following, God-fearing culture. And uh, the people who lived in Hippos, they were very different. They were actually called Hellenists, which meant that their lives were dominated by the pursuit of things like power and pleasure and wealth and fame and accomplishment and leisure. I mean, can you imagine a culture that was dominated by power and pleasure and wealth and fame and accomplishment. I mean, it really stretches my imagination, right? Yeah. Anyway, Hellenists were taught pretty much from birth that an individual's value came from their appearance, their intelligence, and their resources. They saw the human body as the ultimate standard of beauty and the human mind as the ultimate standard of truth. And, and this worldview was developed and maintained throughout the Roman Empire through four physical structures that stood at the center of almost every Roman city, including Hippos. Uh, the first structure was the gymnasium. Uh, this is a, a reconstructed ruins of a gymnasium in Turkey, but you get the idea. They were massive, significant central structures, and it was a place where people would go and train for sport and for war. And uh, a fun fact, the Greek word, root for the word gymnasium is gymnos, and it literally means naked. And training in the gymnasiums in the first century was almost always done in the buff. <laughs> and you thought your junior high PE class was rough, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, the second structure uh, that was common to almost all Roman cities was the theater. Uh, theaters were places where the philosophies of Hellenism were reinforced through dramatic presentations. And practically this meant that Roman people went to the theater both to be entertained and also to be indoctrinated. Uh, these were centers for propaganda. So you have the gym, you have the theater. Uh, the third structure you find in almost every Roman city was the arena. And uh, this was the place where athletic competitions were held in order to, to determine who was like the best 
of the best at all sorts of different athletic challenges. And then much like the gymnasium, much of the competition was done in the nude. And, and again, I was thinking about this this week because, hey, I'm studying it and you got to. And I, I just think, you know, maybe it's my well-developed sense of modesty, but, but the idea of competing athletically in the nude out in front of a bunch of people, just, it just seems odd and it seems to introduce some unfortunate variables into the competition. Would you, would you agree with me on that? Okay, we're moving on. <clears throat> the final structure that you find in every Roman city was the temple. And not just one, cities had multiple temples, uh, but these were formal ceremonial structures built to honor either one of the Greco-Roman gods or the Roman emperor who, beginning in the first century, was worshipped as a god on earth. And so, practically, what all of this meant was that in Jesus' day, if you were to sail from a city like Capernaum to a city like Hippos, I mean, you would enter a totally different world. In fact, the first century rabbis called cities like Hippos a distant country, not necessarily because they were far geographically. The two towns, you know, Capernaum and Hippos are about seven miles apart as a crow flies. But they would call it a distant country because with regards to understanding of things like value and morality and even faith, um, the cities may as well have been located on different planets. And, and by the way, you may have already caught this, but when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son and he said that the younger brother ran off to a distant country, his disciples would immediately have thought of a place like Hippos. It was a place where God-fearing Jews simply didn't go. It was a place their mamas had told them about and warned them about because of the sorts of people that were there and the things that those people did. Forbidden things like idolatry and adultery and bloodshed. Moreover, people in cities like Hippos regularly came into contact with things like tombs and idols and unclean animals, things that Jewish people had been taught were strictly off limits to them. All that to say, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was seen by the Jews as a spiritually dark place that was to be avoided at all costs. And so you can imagine what Jesus' first disciples must have thought the day when standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, he looked at them and said, hey, let's go over to the other side. <laughs> and like with the, you've read this, right? If you've ever read the text, you're like, oh yeah, just, you know, boat ride, cool. And you're like, no, with the context, this was, I mean, they would have been shocked and they would have been stunned and they would have thought he was kidding but but here's the thing if they had the emotional presence to push through all of those initial objections and honestly I don't think they would have but if they had pushed through the initial emotions and reflected on the history of their nation maybe they shouldn't have been entirely surprised and, and here's why I say that deep down they knew that like from the time of Abraham, Israel's founding father who lived 2,000 years before Jesus, God had desired to partner with his people to bring his love to the darkest places in the world. In fact, the authors of the Old Testament record that God had chosen their nation to be set apart for him as a kingdom of priests. It's almost like, you know, if the world is God's temple, then they were going to be the priests. They were called to put the way of God on display for the benefit of all the nations. Because as it turns out, God loves everyone. And uh, by the time the first century rolled around, 
it was no secret that Israel was struggling to live into that purpose. Like religious Jews, especially those who lived on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, had become so disgusted and offended by the principles of Hellenism that they had completely isolated themselves from the people who practiced those principles. And as a result, they had lost their ability to exert any influence on those people. In fact, if they were being honest, they would rather God destroy the Hellenists than love the Hellenists. And so in a sense, you might even say that one of the reasons God sent Jesus was to confront their thinking and to remind them of their mission. I think that's why Jesus wasn't content to simply stay in Capernaum and judge and condemn all the evil happening on the other side of the Sea of Galilee because God had not sent him to condemn the world but to rescue the world. And so one day, midway through his time with his disciples, he looked at them and said, get in the boat because the time has come for me to introduce you to the other side. And uh, there's an early Jesus follower named Mark who recorded what happened the day the bow of their ship met the shores of Hippos. And uh, Mark sets it up this way. He said, they, Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And that's interesting. Gerasenes is a Hebrew word that roughly translates exiled ones. And sort of given the context, that designation makes sense. In the eyes of the Jewish people who lived on, in the Orthodox Triangle, the people at Hippos, I mean, they were the untouchables. People they believed to be truly beyond the love and the grace of God. Anyway, as Mark continued, he noted that upon their arrival, Jesus and his disciples encountered someone who right, might rightly be described as the scariest individual imaginable. He begins with this. He tells us, when Jesus got out of the boat, and I love this, apparently notice the disciples didn't, yeah? So, so Mark says, when Jesus got out of the boat, he says, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Okay, scary guy lives in the tombs, apparently very strong. In fact, he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet no one was strong enough to subdue him. And you're like, anything else we should know? Yes, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So he's ugly and he's constantly making himself more ugly. And just imagine if you lived in Hippos and you had maybe some young kids and you know, they would be going to bed at night and you would be hearing the howling and they would say, you know, dad, mom, what is that? And you say, oh, you know, I think it's probably coyotes. And then one of you is like, no, we should be honest. No, it's a scary man who lives in the tombs who cuts himself with stones. And we tried to subdue him, but he keeps breaking the chains. Good night, kids. <laughs> right? But, but it's impossible to miss Mark's point. In the eyes of a Hellenistic culture who celebrated things like beauty and resources, this man had absolutely no value. He was scarred. He was bruised, covered in dried blood. I mean, his whole community would have seen him as worthless and pitiful. I mean, he contributed nothing, had accomplished nothing, owned nothing, and had absolutely no social status. So that was what the people in Hippos would have thought of him. But honestly, he wouldn't have fared much better in the eyes of the religious Jews. Though for very different reasons. To them, this guy was unapproachably and even offensively unclean. He was a walking violation of the Old Testament laws. So he would have to be avoided and judged and shunned. 
Anyway, as the narrative continued, Mark noted that things quickly got interesting as if they weren't already. But here's what he tells us happened next. When demon guy saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Then he shouted out at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. One of the things I picked up when I was studying, I thought this was so interesting. When you read the accounts of Jesus' life, people including Jesus' disciples, are constantly trying to figure out who he is. But this commentator noted that, you know, the one group that seems to be very clear on who Jesus was, the demons. They're, they're very clear. So anyway, uh, in the name, God's name, don't torture me, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then this is interesting. Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. In other words, Mark writes, the scariest individual imaginable ran at Jesus like a linebacker and then dropped to his knees and engaged Jesus in a conversation in which he articulated a healthy respect for Jesus, for who he was and what he was capable of. And then Jesus learned that the spirit possessing the man was named Legion. And once again, given the context, that is a really interesting name because as it turns out, in the first century, Hippos, along with a few other Roman cities in that region, were home to Rome's legendary 10th Legion. They were the men who helped to install Caesar Augustus, who had been the Roman emperor when Jesus was born, on the throne in Rome. And this is so cool. Their mascot, the 10th Legion's mascot, was a pig. Here's a Roman coin from the time that shows Caesar Augustus on one side and a pig, or actually a boar with tusks, on the other. Hang on to that. Uh, anyway, in his, as his account continued, Mark noted, um, and again, this is where it gets really fun, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hill. Of course they were, right? A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. He says, the herd, about 2,000 in number, that is a lot of pigs. I'm not a farmer, but that's a lot of pigs. Rushed down the sleep bank into the lake and were drowned. And another fun thing I learned while I was studying this week. For some reason, I found myself wondering, do pigs swim? It's just me. And... I inquired of the Google, and I found myself on YouTube watching a video of swimming pigs, because apparently they are very buoyant. They swim really easily. Best part of this story, I'm midway through watching buoyant pigs in swimming, and Randy walks in my office, <laughs> and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, do I want to know? And I said, no. But shout out to Randy and the uh, marriage group in the Bahamas. They're tuning in and they're with us from the warm place. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, now, two quick observations just from the whole pig encounter. First is this. That is a lot of pigs. And I would argue that in this single moment, Jesus may very well have crashed the economy of Hippos because apparently they were doing something significant with these pigs. The second thing I'll point out, and I think this is really the point of the narrative so far, a man who, in the eyes of his world and in the eyes of the Jewish world, was untouchable. A man who everyone believed was beyond grace and beyond hope. This man 
in this moment was rescued by Jesus. And I think the disciples would have been speechless as they watched from the boat. Because, I mean, in this one interaction, pretty much all of their assumptions about who God cared about and who God cared for had been overturned. Anyway, as Mark continued, he wrote that not surprisingly, this newly rescued man begins to plead with Jesus to allow him to go with him. And as I imagine the conversation being overheard by the disciples in the boat, they're all like, no, 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 no. He's still big, and he's still strong, and he's not coming with us. But anyway, Jesus, uh, fortunately, at least for the, from the perspective of the disciples, had other plans um, because he had made this man whole, and God's love was on the move. Light was invading darkness in a new way, and Jesus wanted to use this man's story, this particular man's story, to help other people in need people who weren't nearly as broken as he had been, but people who were broken nonetheless. Because here's the thing, Hellenism as a worldview is ultimately hollow. It looks shiny, it looks captivating, but in the end it is unsatisfying because it is not the sort of life we were made for. And so people in Hippos were broken in all sorts of different ways and believed their brokenness had disqualified them from any sort of intervention from the divine. And this man's story had so much power and so much potential to help others in need. Jesus knew it, and so he sent that man away with these words. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell. And I love that. Like, there's no break. It's like, and he did it. Tell how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. I bet they were. Can you imagine? <laughs> The moment he walked into the city center of Hippos, I've been there, it's not that large. And he walked in and everybody backed away. And as they're looking at him, they notice he's different, he's healed, he's whole, he seems to be restored, he's got clothes on, that's an upgrade, right? And then just imagine what he said as people cautiously drew near to him. Something like, it's okay. I'm not the same. I've been set free. My life has been forever changed by the love of God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. And here's what I find so fascinating. I mean, we don't have a record of those conversations, but we do have a record of the next time Jesus and the disciples are back in this region Mark tells us when Jesus and the disciples are back in this region, we don't know how much time has passed, but they get back in this region and thousands of Hellenists show up to see Jesus. Thousands. I mean, you got to wonder, like, where did these people come from? How did they find out about Jesus? Well, they found out about Jesus because the guy that Jesus told to go and tell went and told. And I just find that incredible. As he told his story, people began to find hope for their stories. If, if God cares about this guy, I mean him, then maybe, just maybe, he, he cares about me too. Now, and I've spent a lot of time with this narrative this week, and I, I think there's a couple specific points of application for you and for me, specifically as to how we are to think about what God is like, 
and how God desires to work through the lives of those of us who have come to know him. And so the first, the first application point goes like this, um, and this is kind of obvious. If God loves this guy, he loves everybody. <laughs> and I mean everybody. If you think about it, Jesus chose the ultimate outsider to illustrate to his disciples that nobody has gone too far and nobody has done too much to put them outside of God's love. And that was good news for them, and that's good news for us. In fact, if, if you're here this morning, and you came in, and if you're honest, you were feeling like, I don't, I'm going to give this one more try, but I don't think God wants anything to do with me. Um, you need to know that, and, you know, you, you say, like, you know, I walked in, and you opened with that Jelly Roll song, and that's like my life's anthem. I mean, I'm just a long-haired son of a sinner looking for new ways I can get gone. I mean, that's, that's my life. If you feel like there's no way God wants anything to do with you, you need to know that the good news is that you're wrong. Your creator loves you. And he wants his love to intersect with your life as individually. And, and once it does, you will never be the same. Jesus loved the worst of us. And he loves you. And that, that brings me to the second point of application. Um, and, it, and it goes like this. Whether you realize it or not, if your life has been changed by the love of God, people need to hear your story. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus made a guy who'd been rescued for like 10 minutes a missionary, which I just find fascinating. Like this guy didn't know anything about what God was like other than the only thing he needed to know. That he mattered, he had value, he'd been set free, and that the one for whom he mattered, who set him free, had told him to go and tell what God had done for him. Because everyone needed to know that in spite of what they thought, God loves him because God loves him. Everyone. And the change in his life was undeniable. People just needed to hear his story. And I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, and many, many of us here are, people need to hear our stories too. I mean, I've been a pastor for a long time, and, and I'm telling you, testimonies from people who have encountered the love of God in their lives are incredibly compelling. I actually think that when it comes to sharing faith with people who are curious about God, maybe the bottom has fallen out of their life and they're looking up for hope for the first time ever. Those people, our story is our greatest asset, even though we don't often think of it that way. I mean, I, and I talk to a lot of you, but like a lot of us would say, you know, I shy away from sharing my faith story because I'm concerned that if I do, someone's going to ask me a question I can't answer. A question about the Bible or a question about science or God or faith or where the dinosaurs fit into the creation story. I don't know. I saw this thing on Netflix. It was, I don't know, right? We, the questions we just can't answer. But if you think about it, when Jesus told the newly rescued man to go and tell the story of how his life intersected with the love of God, he had no training whatsoever. He'd never sat through a sermon, not even a sermon by Jesus. He'd never read a single word in the Bible. He only had his story, and apparently Jesus knew that that was enough. And just to be clear, like there's obviously nothing wrong with theological education or training, but, 
But we need to understand, if our life has intersected with the love of God, we have a story to share, even though we've never been possessed by demons or spent time in prison or been strung out on drugs. If your life has been changed by the love of God, people need to hear your story. They really do. And I think I know why. I don't think there's any stronger connection that can be made between people than one formed through the sharing of story because stories break down barriers and build bridges. Like the moment you begin to be vulnerable and share a little bit of what's happened at the level of your heart, especially when it comes to the love of God, it's like people begin to see hope in their stories. And when someone is going through a tough season of life, it's, it's very natural to feel lonely and as if no one has ever had to travel through anything this challenging before. But see, when they hear the story of how you struggled with something that felt impossible and how with the help of God you survived, it gives them hope that with the, lo with the love and the help of God that maybe they can survive too. And so that said, I just gotta ask you, like when was the last time that you told your faith story to someone? Maybe even to one of your kids. And, and when was the last time that you asked to hear someone else's faith story? Because I'm telling you, there's more power in our stories than we can possibly imagine. And it's good for us to share our story and it's good for others to hear our story. It's a win-win. All right, so now that said, uh, you know, based on this narrative, what do we learn about what God is like? And I, I would say there's two things. Um, the first is simply that he loves everybody. And the second is he really wants you to share your story. He wants to use your story. All right, so before I, before I close, um, we have a special treat today. I, I want us to listen to a song together. Um, and it's one of my favorites. It was on repeat all week as I was working through this content. Because when you start to really see, brush up against the beauty of what God did when he sent Jesus to let us know that he loves us, it, it's, it's just the sense of, of gratitude wells up within us. And so I think I told Alexa to start playing this song on Monday and by Friday I'd listened to it 72 times. But it's such a beautiful song because it's, it's just to feel just for a moment, brush up against the reality that God loves us is so powerful. And I love this song because it was written from that same space, from somebody who has a story, who reached a moment of brokenness, who had the light of God's love shine in his life, left him forever changed, and he became a worshiper. His name's Brandon Lake. He wrote a song called Gratitude. And I love how it begins. He sings, all my words fall short. I have nothing I've said it all to you, but yet, God, I still feel so much for you. And I'm so, so thankful for what you have done, that you love an unlovable person like me. And so my hope is just for the next few minutes, you would just open your hands and open your heart and just be reminded of how much you're loved and just take a moment just to say thank you to God that he would love people like us and desire to use people like us to help his kingdom come here and now. So let's listen to this together and then I'll close our time in prayer. Oh, my words won't short. 
here this morning and, um, man, something connected for you for the first time, you'd just like to pray with someone. We have a few friends who will be under the screen to the left that would just love to pray a blessing over you and hear a little bit of your story. Um, let me pray. Father, we worship you for who you are and for what you have done. We thank you that you sent Jesus so that we could understand the understandable, at least in part, that you are good and that you are for us and you are with us. We pray that as we receive that love as our foundation, the rest of our faith, that picture will just become clear. It starts with love and that was so clear. Thank you for rescuing us, for adopting us as your children, and for offering us hope of a life with you after this life, an eternal life. For today, for this moment, we again just worship you, we bless you, we thank you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Oh, it's been good to be with you, friends. Grace and peace. We'll see you next week.